0: a living history production
1: i'm peter hart and i'm gary bain and together we're pete and gary's military history,
0: history
1: podcast hello and welcome to the podcast i'm gary bain and once more i'm joined by uh, peter hart who has walked several miles to arrive here in a uh, Fine and sweaty condition.
2: Indeed, I am. And what's today,
1: Gary? What are we doing? Today, Pete, we're continuing in our mini series on Jutland. It's not a mini series, Gary, it's a, f- a bloody saga. What, like a holiday? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and today it's uh, Battle Cruiser Action. Ooh. I have to say, this is a rat, rip, roaring episode. Is it? Yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading this.
2: Right, so, uh, so set the scene. Uh, so we, we've got uh, the, all the shippy things are out there. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what's happening? <laughs> well, by 1330... This is on the
1: 31st of May. Beatty had disposed his force so and that the 2nd Battlecruiser Squadron lay some two miles to the northeast of the Lion and the 1st Battlecruiser Squadron, a distance of, well, little technical significance. all. Really. However, the 5th Battle squad, uh, Squadron was stationed some five miles north-northwest of the line, and that is
2: significant. That is significant, because he promised not to do that. Uh, however, perhaps, uh, I mean, the, the thing is that, that, that they'd been told, hadn't they? They'd been told by this telegram from the bloody Admiralty that Shear wasn't out. Yeah, it was very misleading. It
1: all came about by some confusion when a, a Captain Jackson asked the wrong question of Room Forty, uh, so he, he got an answer to his question. But they they assumed that uh, Shear was uh, safely ensconced in Wilhelmshaven when, in fact, all that was there was his uh, his call sign. Yeah, he was so, very much
2: at sea. Uh, so uh, he, he uh, it's possible, Beatty's, uh, The reason he's let them be so far behind, is that he's thinking about the two, because the, the Grand Fleet's out as well, and they're, they're going to have a rendezvous, uh, um, and, and he's thinking about the junction with the, with the Grand Fleet, he, he's thinking about that kind of thing, he's thinking about the fact the 5th Battle Squadron was going to rejoin the uh, the Grand Fleet, and the 3rd Battle Cruiser Squadron, which had been at uh, Scapa Flow improving their gunnery, which they needed to, um, uh, would, would rejoin the Battle Cruiser Fleet, so uh, however, however you dress this up, it's a bit of a bloody error, isn't it?
1: Well, it's a grave error, I think, and uh, it was, it would have a, a significant impact on the course of the looming battle. Ahead of Beatty, to the east, was the screen provided by the 1st Light Cruiser Squadron, while the 2nd and 3rd Light Cruiser Squadrons covered the approaches from the south and southeast.
2: Now, at 1358, they're nearing the designated rendezvous point, and uh, BT signals the ships to be ready to make a turn at 1415 to the northeast. Uh, that's to move towards a direct junction with the Grand Fleet. Now, where, 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 hang on. Uh, what, what, are the, what are the Germans doing? Well, Hippa uh, who was German was at this time
1: pursuing a northerly course some 50 miles to the east of Be. And as their light cruiser screens were still some 16 miles apart, both admirals were in total ignorance of each other's presence at sea.
2: Yeah, Hipper's in charge of the first scouting group, the the German battlecruisers. And who's in charge of the German high seas fleet who are also at sea? Uh,
1: you put me on the point. Uh, Admiral Shearer, I presume. That's
2: it. Good old Reinhard Shear, Your favourite. Who seems to have been a distant relative of, uh, of Blucher.
1: Oh, by his accent, you mean, yes. Now, at this moment in the epic drama that was about to unfold, an archetypal strolling player across the world stage.
2: How Shakespearean of you, Gary. Well, it,
1: yeah, but, but it's apt because it was a Danish tramp steamer. <gasps> Hamlet! The NJ Fjord. Oh. Now, that chose this moment to pass midway between the outline scouts of both sides.
2: So you mean they'd have missed each other if it hadn't been for this ship?
1: Well, just before 1400, she was sighted by the German light cruiser Elbing uh, of the second scouting group. And as a matter of course, two destroyers were sent to investigate.
2: Yeah, so what do the British do? Well, at 1410, the Galatea, the flagship of, uh, of the 1st Light Cruiser Squadron, that's the most easterly ship of uh, bt's screen, that also cites the NJ Fair. and what do they do? Well, they too move to investigate, accompanied by the uh,
1: Phaeton... Oh, I wanted you to say that. As the outer margins of both screens converged on the hapless NJ Fjord, the Galatea was startled to sight the two German destroyers. Uh, Realisation soon dawned on both sides. I'm going to
2: do German now. Der Tag had finally dawned the day. Yeah. So what happens now? Well, immediately, the Galatea started
1: to pursue the destroyers. Commodore Alexander Sinclair, who had initially mistaken them for light cruisers, hoisted the signal flag, enemy in sight, at 14.18 and submitted a wireless sighting report.
2: 14.28, the Galatea, oh, did we mention it was on the 31st of the I can't remember. You did. Oh, phew. Uh, the Galatea opens fire, and so, you know, it's, it's, after all those years, well, two, two and a half years, the, the, the battle's finally coming, isn't it? It's,
1: it's commencing. As the German destroyers fell back on the second scouting group, the Elbing returned fire at a range of about 14,000 yards and made her own contact
2: report. So both both admirals, uh, Shear and Beatty. uh sorry, she- well Shear, Beatty, Hipper. Everybody bloody knows. Um. So the Galatea's wireless reports are picked up on the Iron Duke. Uh, and what does what what does Iron what does Jellicoe think? John Jellicoe, the uh, the commander of the Grand Fleet, think?
1: Well, he still believed that the high seas fleet was safely tucked up in harbour thanks to the earlier Admiralty signal. Oh! Don't. Nevertheless, he realised that something was afoot. And he immediately ordered the Grand Fleet to raise steam ready to proceed at full speed.
2: Now, Beatty, he's on his northeastly course, so he's heading towards, uh, uh, towards Jellicoe. Um, when he receives the message from the Galatea, he gets that about 1420. At 1430, Thirty-two. he orders the flag signal to be hoisted for a general change, of course, to the south-southeast. Now, in doing this, uh, you're probably not aware of this, Gary, but this causes one of the all-time greatest never-ending disputes in the, his- the entire history of the Royal Navy. What goes on? What happens? Why is this so controversial?
1: Well, the moment the signal was hoisted, the Lion turned to the new course accompanied by the 1st Battlecruiser Squadron and the 2nd Battlecruiser Squadron. At the same time, BT increased speed, and this is important, to 22 knots. Unfortunately, the Fifth Battle Squadron failed to accompany the battle cruisers. So, what's gone wrong?
2: Well, in essence, the Barham—that's the flagship of the Fifth Battle Squadron—was too far away. It couldn't read the flag signal made by the Lion. Wow. And the super dreadnoughts—they'd been zigzagging,
1: controlled from the Lion by signal flags, which had been repeated for them by flashing searchlight from the Tiger.
2: Yeah, they, they, now these flags are, are the little tiny flags.
1: Well, they, they may have been large, but they couldn't easily be read at a distance of five miles. Five miles is a long way. I'm just thinking—that's the distance between here and my ass. Yeah, could I see something if you held it up in your window? <laughs> Now, it's also vital to understand that they would have been only briefly displayed before being hauled down, which was the sign to execute
2: the order. That's the role Navy thing. You put it up and then you do it, whatever it says, when it's pulled down. Now, uh, is there anything else that might be causing visible problems? Well, the dense smoke that poured from the battlecruisers as they
1: simultaneously raised steam to accommodate the increase in speed.
2: I can say that would, that just makes everything worse, or to use a posh word, exacerbate the difficulties of reading them at long range. Uh, but, but, but surely the, there was the searchlight signals from the, 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 the Tiger.
1: Well, yeah, that, the Tiger actually confounds the problems by failing to repeat the signal by searchlight.
2: Now, that, <laughs> In this doubt, who who's the man on the Barham that's in charge? Well, this is Vice Admiral Sir Hugh Evan Thomas. He's in charge of the Fifth Battle Squadron. Now, um, what does he think's happening? He, he,
1: well, he's he, naturally expecting the fresh signal to be a continuation of the pattern of course changes. Don't forget, they were zigzagging; they'd been following, and uh, the Barham ordered the squadron to turn from their northeasterly course to the northwest at fourteen thirty-two.
2: A zigzag. Yeah. So he
1: thinks they're just changing the zigzag. Now, the two elements of Beatty's force thus begin to head in opposite directions.
2: Does that... Does that... So, the battle cruisers are going that way. Yes. And the others are going exactly the opposite course. And the battle cruisers have also raised speed. Now, what difference... What, what is the impact of that? Well...
1: As the battlecruisers raced off, each precious minute added immensely to the distance between themselves and the Super Dreadnoughts. Why does that matter? Well, they were supposed to ensure that Beatty wasn't outnumbered if caught by Shear and the first scouting group. This had rightly been seen as a serious failure in command and control by Beatty, and this is... Vice-Admiral Sir Hugh Evan Thomas aboard HMS Barham of the 5th Battle Squadron.
2: Ah, after all, isn't it one of the fundamental principles of naval tactics that an admiral makes sure that his orders are understood by distant parts of his fleet before rushing into space covered by a smoke screen? uh, You could see his point. Uh, And there's other things making it more difficult for, for Evan Thomas. What? Well, as a new arrival, he was unaware of the intricacies of the standing
1: battlecruiser fleet orders, which warned that he would not wait for acknowledgements from his subordinate admirals.
2: I know. Yeah, I think you can go too far on this, uh, exculpating.
1: Yeah, because even Evan Thomas himself is not entirely free from blame in this calamity. Why not? Well, as the battlecruisers disappeared into the middle and then far distance, he was lamentably slow in taking any action himself. How slow? In fact, about seven minutes passed before they swung onto the south-southeast course. And even then, it was only because the order was belatedly repeated to him by searchlight from the lion.
2: Yeah, I think he's guilty of standing on little more than his bloody dignity and due ceremony here. I mean, he should have he should have noticed something was up. Do you not think? Well, surely it was
1: obvious that the 1st and 2nd Battlecruiser squadrons were no longer zigzagging in concert with his ships, and by failing to take the independent corrective action, that was clearly within his power. So he was guilty of what? (laughs) A egregious blunder. That's uh, outstandingly bad or
2: shocking. I looked it it up. (laughs) I remember having to look at that egregious up now. Uh, so, uh, are the consequences... Uh, they're serious, aren't
1: they? Well, what's happening? The original gap of five miles, which already separated Beatty from Evan Thomas, was overly large for proper close support. Already? So before anything
2: happened, it's too big.
1: Now, that gap had opened up to around ten miles.
2: Now, ten miles? That's from here to Edgeware.
1: Yeah, people listening to this might not know... Any of that? It's ten miles.
2: Perhaps best to left at ten yeah.
1: miles. Now, fourteen thirty-five. The Galatea made another report. Urgent. Have sighted <laughs> large <laughs> amount <laughs> of <laughs> smoke, <laughs> <laughs> as though from a fleet bearing east-northeast. Uh, Whoever was over the horizon, the battle cruisers would now have to meet them on their own. Oh, Gary! Dun
2: dun uh, dun. dun! Now. Uh, Hippa, what's he doing? He, he, he doesn't know who he's facing, so he swings round in stages till at fifteen ten he's st- steering a northwesterly course. So he's also in pursuit of—he's also charging towards uh, Beatty, in a sense. Uh, he's in hot pursuit of what he imagines to be his prey. Whoa. As the British,
1: British, but as British, the British, British battle cruisers off, eventually to be followed by the fifth battle squadron. What are they doing? Desperately engaged in cutting corners to try to diminish the gap. There was a lengthy period of calm before the storm that would engulf them.
2: Now, you know, how can this be? Well, sighting reports that the light cruiser screens, that the British and Germans knew that the others' battle cruisers might be at sea, but the sea's a big place, and, and there was a good deal of sailing and, and uh, waiting before they could actually see each other. That there's, that we're talking miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, 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 aren't we? Yes, now, an attempt to carry out a seaplane Ooh, wrecking,
1: did that work? Uh, ...by HMS Engadine failed. As oh. the signalling arrangements broke down and any intelligence gained was lost.
2: Yeah, early days for aerial reconnaissance at sea, I'm afraid. Uh, now, the fleets are closing in on each other. And uh, which, which, are, the, the, one of the things about the sea is, is it, can you see both ways equally?
1: No, in this case, the visibility was favourable to hipPA, for it was considerably clearer looking west than it was east.
2: And this is just a thing about being at sea; it's it's a known phenomenon. It's different phenomenon. Phenomenon. Now at
1: fifteen twenty, you noticed how professional I'm being today. Oh. At fifteen twenty, hipPA from his flagship the Lutzov. Caught his first glimpse of the smoke of the approaching British battlecruisers several minutes before he was sighted by his opposite number on the Bridge of the Lion.
2: Now, at first, Hipper doesn't know which way the, the British battlecruisers are going. He doesn't know about their formation. He's not sure exactly who's there. So, he, he just basically carries on sailing to clarify the situation. Uh, though he does slow down to 23 knots, uh, while he, you know, while he's pondering on this. Uh, so, so what about the British? When do they bloody see that these Germans? Well, at around fifteen twenty five. Five minutes difference then. The
1: first British sighting reports were made from the New Zealand and Princess Royal. Beatty finally sighted the German battlecruisers from the Lion at about fifteen thirty, and immediately ordered his ships back onto an easterly course to close rapidly with the Germans, while at the same time placing himself squarely between
2: Hipper and his base. That's always the aim the British want to get so that they're in between the Germans and Homie womey Now, uh, at this time, is seen who he is. He can, he can see the six dark grey British battlecruisers. And he realises that the British are present in greater strength. And he realises... What else does he realise? Well, he's
1: in imminent danger of being cut off. What does he do? At 15.33... He recalled the light cruisers pursuing the Galatea and turned 16 points to starboard, in effect, reversing his course right round to the southeast. What's his cunning plan? He
2: has got a cunning plan here.
1: Well, this would take him straight back towards the high seas fleet, and if Beatty followed, it would draw him straight into Shear's welcoming steel embrace. Steel embrace? <laughs> yes. Aboard the Deer You mean he'd blow him up? Yes, aboard the Derflinger, von Haas. Now, who's von
2: Haas? You, you've been in before. We've I mean.
1: been him. He's Commander George von Haas of the SMS Derflinger. And uh, he watched the approach of the British battlecruisers. The fantasy appeared to be unfolding before yeah, his eyes. Be, he'd be, been dreaming about daydreaming this. dreaming yeah.
2: about it, hadn't he? That was in the last podcast. So what, what does he say? And uh, I think the, the listeners are going to enjoy this accent.
1: Suddenly, my periscope revealed some big ships, black monsters, Six broad-beamed giants, steaming in two columns. They were still a long way off, but they showed up clearly on the horizon, and even at this great distance, they looked powerful and massive.
2: Now, on the British ships, they're also starting to see their arch rivals and uh, the word starts to pass about the ships, the fleet. Remember, most people on a ship can't see what's going on. Uh, they're, they're, they're below decks or in the turrets, but the crews are galvanized into action. And I'm going to tell you what midshipman Gordon Eady, who's on HMS New Zealand, says. At 3.30, just as we were sitting down to tea in the gun room, the snotty of the watch, that's midshipmen, of the watch dashed in and informed us that the Galatea had sighted enemy ships and that we should be going into action stations in 10 minutes' time. Knowing that this might lead to anything, we made the best of that 10 minutes. Crikey. Oh, stowing, stowing away as much food as possible. They say a Britisher fights best on a full stomach. Then for the second time in my life, I heard the real action stations call sounded off on the bugle. This same call is used for practice, but preceded and ended by a long G. Today's call meant the real thing, and I'm sure it sent a joyful thrill through everybody and scattered us to our action stations, full of eagerness with a spice of Nelson's peerage or Westminster Abbey spirit. I just had time to grab my gives waistcoat from the sea chest and dash below. Wow. So he's quite excited by it. He um, is, say-
1: because this is the real thing. Fierce excitement and frenetic activity filled the
2: air. Now, what's the raison d'etre? Would you say, Gary, of the battlecruisers and super dreadnoughts, the dreadnoughts, what, what, what's them raison d'etre?
1: Well, I think you're referring to their main armament, which was the 12-inch, 13.5-inch and 15-inch gun turrets. So not Raisin Pudding. No. They were guided by a director system. Oh, I'm looking forward
2: to explaining this. I actually, in the hardback of the book, explained this completely wrong and somebody had to write in to correct it. Could you just explain to me the director system and everything involved in it, Gary?
1: In the gunnery control tops high above the ship were installed Dumaresque Trigonometrical Calculating Machines. Now, I had a look at this. They were v- invented around 1902 uh, by Lieutenant John uh, Dubaresque. <laughs> and in essence, it's an analogue computer uh, which often worked with the Vickers uh, range clock. And it's, it's designed to, uh, uh, to work out the deflection and range uh, that, that's required by the guns. Now... Having given a full explanation, Pete...
2: Hmm. So, basically, the, 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 the range, the bearing, the course and speed, various instruments worked that out, and that would be passed to this... Analogue means mechanical?
1: Yes. Yeah. Now, as the battlecruisers sighted their enemies, the rangefinders and directors began their vital work. The first readings began to be charted in the transmitting stations deep in the bowels of the ships.
2: Why in the bowels?
1: Because that's where they were.
2: Well, because if they got hit, the, the, the ship would be helpless. So, yeah. Oh, it's, it's it's so exciting. What's going to happen next? Well, the,
1: the precise directions for laying the big guns were transmitted to each of the main turrets. Now... Yes, Gary? They don't just fire, do they? To load the guns... The shells and cordite charges that propelled them with such devastating power out of the guns had to be brought up from the shell room and magazine directly underneath the turret gunhouse, And this is what Lieutenant John Hazelwood of HMS Tiger said.
2: The gun crews were closed up and eventually the order to load was passed. That meant the shells and the cartridges had to come up from the bottom of the ship, where there were shell rooms and magazines. It was all mechanical, being hydraulic. They were brought up, the shell first, then the rammer operator pushed the shell into the gun followed by four quarter charges of cordite. That's the explosive, isn't it? Yeah. We stayed in this position until the order to bring the guns to the ready was passed. When the guns were brought to the ready, you simply waited for the open fire. We were looking forward to a chance to have a crack at the enemy. We were keen. This was a day we'd been waiting for. Wow. Der
1: Tag. Der Tag again. Now, the Germans were both surprised and relieved that the British had not yet opened fire. For they were only too aware that the 13.5-inch guns of the 1st Battlecruiser Squadron had a far superior range of some 24,000 yards. Compared to what? Well, the German 11-inch and 12-inch guns could only manage between 19,000 and 21,000 yards at the
2: maximum. So that meant there's about 3,000 yards, three, four, three to 4,000 yards, yeah?
1: Yep, yeah, the difference in ranges marked a zone during which the British could hit the Germans without any prospect of return fire. This was a missed opportunity. And we'll take a short break.
0: Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
1: There were a number of factors that prevented the British ships from opening fire earlier.
2: Perhaps they didn't want to hurt the Germans.
1: That may well have been the case, but I think foremost, foremost amongst them was that the British rangefinders were nowhere near as effective and considerably overestimated the
2: range. Now, this is another technical thing. It's all about the, the, the length of the, uh, the thingy bobby. By the breadth of the what's-it. And, the, and, the, uh, and the, the different ways of stereoscopic sausage. And, and, and as you can tell, we, we, we have a complete grasp of this issue, don't we, Gary?
1: Yeah, now, whatever it was, the British had lost part of the advantage given to them by their heavier main
2: armament. Well, the, yeah, the Germans themselves take the range and, and they, they, the <laughs> yeah, Germans, they take the liberty of opening fire first at 1548. So that's 1548 on the 31st of May, 1916. Wow. So how are the, how, how we so you've got six, battle Christmas versus five. How, how does uh, Admiral von Hipper dispose his fire? Well, he
1: orders his battlecruisers to distribute their fire from left to right as they steam to the south. As
2: Right, OK. So what does that mean in effect? Well, the Lutzov
1: fired at Lion, Deerflinger at Princess Royal, Sedlitz at Queen Mary, Moltke at Tiger, and the Vondertan left the New Zealand in peace and fired at the Indefatigable.
2: Now, uh, so, what uh, What does uh, Beatty order his ships to do? Well... His first two ships
1: to fire at the uh, leading German ship, so that's Lion and Princess Royal firing at the Lutzow, Queen Mary at Derflinger, Tiger at Seydlitz, New Zealand at Molker and Indefatigable indefatigable, at von
2: der Tann. Wow. Now, so let's go and have a look at your Uh, favourite. In accordance with Hipper's instruction, Commander von uh, uh, Georg von Hayes, a lovely chap, uh, he's firing, therefore, uh, yeah, 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 he's firing at the Princess Roads. What does he say?
1: All was ready to open fire. The tension increased every second, but I could not yet give the first order to fire. I had to wait for the signal from the flagship. Fifteen thousand, as my last order rang out, there was a dull roar. I looked ahead. The Lutzov is firing her first salvo, and immediately the signal "Open fire is hoisted in the same second. I shout, Salvos, fire!" and like thunder, our first salvo crashes out. The ships astern follow suit at once, and we see all around the enemy jets of fire and rolling clouds of
2: smoke. Wow, so you see the shells bursting round the round the British, yeah, and they're pretty close, aren't they? Uh the, Then the British open fire uh, at last. Now, uh so so uh, here's a, an account from Midshipman uh, uh, Anthony Coombe. He's on HMS Lion, and where is he? Where is he on the? the He's above the bridge, and
1: uh, he hears the momentous the order top. to fire. And this is midshipman Anthony Coombe of HMS Lion.
2: Almost immediately after the enemy had opened fire, the captain said, Open fire! to the foretop, and the gunnery lieutenant commander opened fire with four 13.5-inch guns all at once. You could hear the firing bell in the transmission station ring, and the direction layer pressed a trigger at which all the guns went off with a Tremendous, great crash. Then I set myself down at my voice pipes, trusting to look that the foretop would be spared. Because the foretop's up the mast, Gary, above the bridge. It's a pretty vulnerable place to be, if you think about it.
1: All along the British line, the guns finally blazed out. (gasps) The first German salvo screamed towards their targets. Although they too had overestimated the range, for the most part, they corrected the error and soon began straddling their targets. That's a bad
2: choice. That's shells either side. And that usually means with gunnery that they're going to...
1: Correct it so that you can hit in the middle.
2: So tell me what uh, your hero, Commander Jorg von Hayes, or whatever it is, on the Dürflinger says. The
1: second salvo crashed out. Again, it was over. Down 400! I ordered. The third and fourth salvers were also over, in spite of the fact that after the third I had given the order. Down 800! Good God, Strakow! There's something wrong, I cursed. Down 800! It appeared later from the gunnery log that the midshipman had probably not understood the first down 800, or at any rate it had not been acted upon. This time, however, the down 800 was effective, The sixth salvo, fired at 5.52, straddled, three splashes over the target, one short. We had, meantime, reached the range of 11,900, as the elevation clock showed a rate of 200 closing and then 300 closing per minute. We had already been in action four minutes, and only now had we straddled our target. That wasn't a very cheering result. Our first rounds had been well over.
2: Yeah, that sort of contradicts what I said. Um, but, but in fact, it is true that the Germans did get on much much quicker than the British. The Durfling has a special, uh, special problem. I want to make clear that any time in the German ones are also wrong because the Germans are on a different time system. I think there's two hours difference or one hour difference. I'm never sure. Whatever the
1: German mistakes were, they, however, paled into insignificance compared to the massive uncorrected overestimate of the range of the British rangefinders.
2: Yeah, they've got a bad visibility conditions. They've got the they've got the smoke drifting across the fleet. They're, uh, it, it's just bloody awful. Uh, wh- wh- where does this smoke come from?
1: Well, the problem with the smoke from the British destroyers was caused as they passed up the engaged side of the British battlecruisers in an attempt to regain their correct station in the
2: screen. Because it's all a surprise, so they're in the wrong place. And instead of going, they, they just go up there, so their smoke gets in the way. Uh, now there's the the the, the there's uh, there's also uh, another problem and that's we we've, we've had the distribution of fire what could go wrong with that what could go wrong with that after all so the distribution it's quite simple 6v5 what what could go wrong
1: as at the battle of dogger bank they'd managed to blunder in their distribution of fire the orders had been made by signal flags and once again not all of the intended recipients had received their orders oh! so Whilst Lion and Princess Royal were concentrating on the Lützow, as ordered, the Queen Mary, instead of taking on the second ship in the German line, the Dürflinger was firing at the third in line, the Seidlitz. Mean, that
2: means the is undisturbed. Uh, and uh, von Haas, aboard the Dürflinger realised he's getting a bit of a free ride here, doesn't he? And this is what he says. What
1: astonished me was that so far we had apparently not been hit once. "'Only quite rarely did a shot stray near us. "'I observed the gun turrets of our target more closely "'and established that she was not firing at us. "'She too was firing at our flagship. "'I observed the third enemy ship for a moment. "'By some mistake, we were being left out. "'I laughed grimly.' And now I began to engage our enemy with complete calm, as I'd gun practice with
2: continually increasing accuracy. That was normal because behind uh, the, the, the Queen Mary, the Tiger also missed the gunnery distribution s- uh, signal, and that was aiming at the Seydlitz instead of her opposite number, which she, she might be aiming at the Moltke. It's all going wrong! Well, to compound that... The New Zealand was firing
1: as intended by BT, at the fourth in line, so she too
2: was also firing at Mulker. However, at the back of the line, the Indefatigable and Vondelton—they're—they're they're doing what everybody wants them to do. They're firing at each other. That's good. They're right now. Um. So now, um, the Molka was getting the undivided attention of both the Tiger and the New Zealand, but uh, she, she, she her she's firing well and she hits home hard um so so what happens she's firing at the tiger the Malka. what happens
1: at around 1554 a series of her shells crashed down on the tiger putting both q and x turrets temporarily out of action and causing considerable damage elsewhere.
2: She's only got 11-inch shells. Uh, um, They're still big, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and they're still capable of causing the most dreadful wounds. Men were smashed by the explosive blast, maimed by the flying shards, burnt by the searing flames, or gassed by the noxious poisonous fumes.
2: Yeah, it's a nasty business. The fight's growing in severity. The battlecruisers are continuing to converge on each other, and and the Range closest to 13,000 yards. Now, this is this is pretty close range. Battlecruisers don't have that much armour. Um, um, so what happens?
1: In recognition of this, at 1555, Hipper ordered his ships to turn away to the southeast. A couple of minutes later... BT also ordered his ships to turn away from their south-southeast course, round by two points to the south.
2: So the both sides are just turning slightly away from their, their enemies to open out the range a bit. Um, now, um, so what's happening? How are the British doing now? Are we doing any better?
1: Well, in those opening minutes, the British rate of fire was increasing, but only the Queen Mary, widely considered the crack gunnery ship of the battlecruiser fleet, managed to score any hits. As she landed two shells in succession at 1555 and 1557 to leave her mark on the Seydlitz.
2: Now, this is, a, this is important because the second 13.5 inch shell smashes over and, and knocks out the sea turret, which was amidships on the Seydlitz. Now, this is a. Remember what had happened at Dogger Bank. Remember, they brought in flash control modifications uh, uh, in response to to, to, to a a disastrous fire that took out two tourists. So what happens now? Off the same ship. The same ship, Gary. You're right. So what happens? Do do these things work? What happens? And who are you going to be to tell us?
1: Well, this is Capitan Surse Moritz von Egedy of SMS Seidlitz. Oh, I'm just thinking we're going to get a flavor here. The gunnery central station deep down reported. No answer from C-turret. Smoke and gas pouring out of the voice pipes from C-turret. That sounded like the time at Dogger Bank. Then it had been C and D-turrets. A shell had burst outside, making only a small hole, but a red-hot piece of steel had ignited a cartridge. The flash setting fire to 13,000 pounds of cordite. 190 men had been killed, and the two turrets had been put out of action. Afterwards, a thorough examination showed that everything had been done in accordance with the regulations. I told the gunnery officer, if we lose 190 men and almost the whole ship in accordance with regulations, then they are somehow wrong. Therefore, we made technical improvements and changed our methods of training as well as the regulations. This time, only one cartridge caught fire. The flash did not reach the magazines, and so we lost only 20 dead or severely burned, and only one turret was put out of action. So still a blow, but it
2: was managed. So it it worked. Uh, They they still weren't flash-proof, but it was better. It was controlled. Well, the whole ship
1: wasn't put in danger.
2: Yeah. Now, meanwhile,
1: Princess Royal was also beginning to suffer.
2: Ooh, what happens? Just
1: before 1600, she was hit by a series of shells from the Derflinger. Abel Seaman James Herford and several other gunners had been ordered to retire from their action stations on the 4-inch guns to take shelter in the lower deck flats. And this is what Abel Seaman James Herford of HMS Princess Royal says.
2: There were quite a few sailors there, all dancing to mouth-organ music. I said to the officer in charge, ''The shells are dropping all around us, sir.'' ''All right,'' he replied. ''Get your respirator, there may be gas shells.'' That's not... there. Then all of a sudden we got an armour-piercing liquid fire shell in the flat. This is the effect he's talking, not about the real thing. ''Everything was red-hot. I fell to the deck. After a while I heard people moaning. Everything was in darkness, no lights. I came to and put my hands to my head and thought, I'm not dead. My head's still on. <laughs> then I was picked up by the first aid man. I could walk after a moment or two, and they took me to the sick bay. When I got to the sick bay, there seemed to be a hundred and fifty dead and wounded, worse than me. I thought so. I walked away and went to the mess deck. Later on, I blacked out. So he was clearly. Clearly badly damaged by that, but uh, yeah. You'll notice they think gas shells, liquid fire shells, this is just what the shells the, the impact and the fumes, this is what causes the, this sort of phrase, phraseology.
1: The Dairflinger's undisturbed target practice was ended after about ten
2: minutes as the
1: Princess Royal at last began to return her fire.
2: So uh, I, I, I now like to think of Von Hayes. and Now, now he can watch the shells coming towards him. He'd also dreamed about that in his, uh, his previous thing. So what does he say?
1: I again fixed the enemy turrets with my periscope and watched them carefully. I now saw that they were directly trained at us. I made a further discovery, which astonished me. With each salvo fired by the enemy, I was able to see distinctly four or five shells coming through the air. They looked like elongated black spots. Gradually, they grew bigger, and then, crash, they were here. They exploded on striking the water or the ship with a terrific roar. After a bit, I could tell from watching the shells whether they would fall short or over, or whether they would do us the honour of a visit. honour of a visit. <laughs> Silly old phone now, for both sides, it was a wild, exhilarating or, in fact, terrifying scene with
2: danger siding <sighs> towards them from seemingly every angle. The rate of fire was increasing. At last, the, the lion begins to get the range right. But then, 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 at 1600, the Lutzow uh, struck what could have been a decisive blow in the battle. What, what happened, Scary? A 12-inch shell burst on the top of the left gun
1: of Lion's Q turret. So what does it do? And what damage is suffered? The blast peeled back the roof and front of the turret as if it was cardboard and the killed or wounded roof. most of the crew. Yeah, the roof of the turret crushed back onto the deck of the injured Lion. The now open-topped turret caught fire and there was an obvious danger to the whole ship if the fire spread to the magazine. And this is Private Harry Willow's uh, RMLI of HMS Lyon.
2: A heavier explosion than usual occurred, and dense smoke came down the trunk, stopping progress until we'd shipped our respirators. Two men were brought up from the shell room; both had been working in the gunhouse and were badly wounded. They were passed along the mess deck to their medical station. Standing by the magazine door, I heard the officer of the turret give the order: "Close magazine doors. Q turret out of action." The corporal and I closed the port magazine door and clipped it up. Well, the the Royal Marines, Royal Marine Light Infantry.
1: Yeah, the Q turret was manned by the Royal Marines under Major Francis Harvey. He was mortally wounded and had lost both of his legs. But in the last moments of his consciousness, he retained the presence of mind to issue crucial orders to flood the magazine. Harvey was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross.
2: Yeah, there's some doubt as to which orders were acted upon to close the magazine, but I think the point is that he did issue orders and, and I mean, it was a very brave man, very brave action. Uh, so how's the lion doing? Uh, badly damaged, I'd thought. Yeah, for a moment she staggered out of the line
1: to starboard, possibly exacerbated by a mistake in the handling of the ship. But as the battle raged, some miles behind... Oh, hang on... We've, I'm just beginning to remember something. Who who am I remembering? The fifth battle squadron, and they were desperately trying to catch up, although they were still steering east rather than heading south. Oh God! Uh,
2: oh. Uh, can they engage the German? battle too far away
1: to engage anything. Now the pace of the main engagement between the battle cruisers remained
2: frenetic. Oh, now at the rear of the light. So that's the indefatigable. Uh, that she's in a rancorous single ship duel with her opposite number, the Von der Tann. Now, then something terrible happens, and this is terrible. There's no, there's no. Uh, at about uh, sixteen hundred, it's all happening. at sixteen hundred, just just before it, one of the signalers is uh, is ordered up uh, aloft to clear the the signal flags. Uh, they, what, what had happened to the signal flags? Well, they'd become
1: entangled around the mast of the ship uh, as it manoeuvred in battle. And this is signal a sea farmer aboard... Charles, you mean. I do mean Charles, actually. You're quite right. Aboard HMS Indefatigable. The message came up for someone to go aloft to clear the flags. I went up, took my sea boots off first, climbed out the foretop, went up the Jacob's ladder right to the very top. I unfurled the flag and I sat on the wireless yard looking around, naturally watching the firing.
2: God, think of how high up he is. Jolly Matelow. He's brave. <laughs> now, yeah, right. What happens? 1602. So, just a minute or two later, after he's gone up, a shell from the, a salvo from the Von der Tann crashes down onto the Indefatigable. Wow. Um, now, we don't, the, the, it gets confusing now. Uh, Accident or design, the Indefatigable shears out of line to starboard. And a few seconds later, what happens, Gary? What happens?
1: Well, she's hit by a second salvo, which provoked a huge explosion.
2: Now, Charlie Farmer, he liked to be called Charlie, Charles Farmer was still aloft up there on the uh, foretop when the, this, this second batch of 11-inch shells struck. Uh, and he's within the eye of a storm almost, isn't he? And, and what, he, it's, it's stupendous, it's stupefying, it's unbelievable, the explosion. There's pictures of it, we'll put them up. Uh, so what does Charles Farmer say?
1: There was a terrific explosion aboard the ship. The magazines went. I saw the guns go up in the air just like matchsticks. 12-inch guns they were. Bodies and everything. She was beginning to settle down. Within half a minute, the ship turned right over and she was gone. I was 180 foot up and I was thrown well clear of the ship. Otherwise, I would have been sucked under. I was practically unconscious, turning over really. At last... I came on top of the
2: water. Yeah, he, he he managed to survive by clinging onto a piece of debris until he's picked up much later. Uh, survivors. So, uh, so uh, I presume there's some more survivors, aren't there?
1: Yeah, there was just one other, Able Seaman Elliot, who had also been in the top.
2: Now, this is the point about naval warfare. If you make Ga- this point a lot. I do. I do, Sorry, Gary. No, yes, no, know. no.
1: It's a it's a really good it, point.
2: You you you're quite safe on a ship. Until something goes wrong, and what happens when something goes wrong? It's almost instant instantaneous, and it's bad, isn't it?
1: The other one thousand and seventeen men serving aboard were all killed. The whole ship's company, not wounded, not crippled, not got a blighty, or mentally scarred, just dead. Yeah,
2: and it's so sudden. It must if you're watching that kind of thing. It, uh, I mean, other ships, you must real bloody hell that could happen to us. Anyway, uh, so the, that leaves uh, five aside now. now uh, well, there was six, now there's five. Uh, uh, and and, and the, 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 the firing does settle down. The British do take on the opposite numbers in the line properly. Um, Well, that's often easier said than done in the assorted confusions of a smoke-wreathed battle, Pete. Oh, no. Now, the
1: initial problems encountered by the British in sorting out their fire distribution... Is that serious? Well, it'd been an irritant and more uh, symptomatic of a lack of professionalism within the battlecruiser fleet than a significant disturbance to the course of events. So,
2: why why were things going wrong for the British then? What is the real reason, in our view...
1: Well, what had proved more serious was the absence during the early stages of the action of the 5th Battle Squadron, left trailing behind and still heading east.
2: So they, they were firing at German light cruisers, but that's irrelevant to any, if you're being rational, any assessment of the course of the main battle. Uh, and and they, they were firing at light cruisers while the Indefatigable was losing its single-ship duel with the Molka. Uh, do you think it would have been different if the 5th Battle Squadron had been in close support? Well,
1: the indefatigable, indefatigable might still have been lost, but it's reasonably certain that Hitler's battlecruisers would have suffered a much more severe pounding as the price for their success. So
2: we can't say we that the know. Indefatigable wouldn't have been hit and blown up anyway. But what we can say is that the they would have damaged the Germans a bloody sight more. They were also very good at gunnery, the 5th Battle Squadron, which will become apparent in future episodes. So... Um, it's only at 16:05, just shortly after the Indefatigable was gone, that the forgotten Fifth Battle Squadron finally get in touch with the battle crews. and they open fire at extreme range. That's uh, 25, 26, 27, 28 thousand, a lot of thousands. Is it 32 thousand? I've gone and forgotten that. So I do a, uh,
1: extreme range.
2: Yeah. A minute um, later. And so, so, what happened? Who's firing at who
1: there? Well, the Barham and Valiant fired at the Moltke. While the war spy and Malaya aimed at the Von, uh, von der Tann.
2: Uh, was that nice for the Von der Tann and the Moltke?
1: Well, the belated arrival of the British super dreadnoughts was a serious matter for the Von der Tann and the Moltke, for as battlecruisers, they'd not been designed to cope with the crushing impact of the huge. 1,950 pound shells that almost immediately began falling around so that's them.
2: that's roughly the same weight each shell as you, Gary.
1: Yeah, roughly.
2: <laughs> R- roughly. <laughs> now, at
1: 1618, the van der Tan had no option but to switch her fire onto the Barham. Unsubdued by the unequal match, her general accuracy was still
2: impressive. Yeah, the Von der Tan's good at gunnery, isn't it? Uh, but it's uh, it's 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 it, it, it's an unequal an duel. And and the Fifth Battle Squadron, their their huge 15 shells, began to really batter to buggery the Von der Tannes Technical the, term. Yeah, the rear of the German line. But we've got to remember the Von der right at the back. Molka's just in front of it. Uh, so uh, the fifth battle squadron have come into to, to the action, and Beatty returns to the attack. What does he order? At sixteen oh
1: nine, he ordered Captain James Ferry, commanding the thirteenth flotilla, to launch his destroyers into an attack on the German line.
2: And three minutes later, so that's uh, sixteen twelve, uh, he turns his battle cruisers two points back to the east. That puts him on a course of what, Gary? Got on, work it out. Work it out. Come on. South southeast.
1: So he's now once more closing with the Germans. At the same time, Hipper turned two points
2: to the west. Oh, so they're converging again. In fact, they're rapidly co- converging. Uh, um, <laughs> so the battle, it's its ratcheting up to a new and awful crescendo. I can't explain, Mike. My... So what
1: happens then? What
2: happens now, Gary?
1: We'll have to wait and see. Cliffhanger.
2: Is that what that funny noise was? Well,
1: it's meant to be EastEnders. <laughs>
2: Well, I thought it was brilliant I Gary. can't
1: wait for the next
2: one. Well, I think I think we've always been interested, Jutland. Uh, if people would like to read more, they can find more. Not in our book. Uh, uh, I've forgotten the name of it. <laughs> but in my book called Jutland, which came out when you were a little lad in short trousers, Gary. Uh, it's still available. It's cheap as chips. Uh, and it's called Jutland, Death in the Grey Wastes. Yes. Cheers, yeah. Pete. Cheers, Gary. <coughs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash pgmh or
1: visit .blah, blah, 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 blah
2: and we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers.
1: Thanks for listening.